0: Merry Christmas, if you don't know this, this is our our last gathering here at the Ruby of the year. If we hadn't had birthday Sunday just a few weeks ago and reflected on our year, I'd I'd feel like I needed to do that now, but I'll be more concise since we spent a whole day doing that. Uh, So thankful for this past year. Uh, Both, gosh, what God has done in my life personally, he's just shown his mercy and his grace to me in some really profound ways. Um, This church family, you know, I, I don't know where your heart is at with this family, but where mine is at, I just, I deeply love this. This is a grace to my life to gather with you guys. And from where I'm sitting, I've just seen a, a spiritual depth and a spiritual maturity increase this year. And I feel a, just a robust faith in Jesus growing in this space a surrender to Jesus, uh, just kind of a God, whatever you say goes, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Um, I think that's what's required of a church. (laughs) I think that's, that's a, a really healthy posture as a church to, to fulfill its potential of being the body of Christ, but not every church can do, does that. And so it's just by God's grace and mercy that I sense this like surrender in this room in this Jesus, we want more. We're your people. And, uh, just shout out to the Lord for his grace and mercy, amen? Like, goodness gracious, he is like so supremely alive. Um, all right, we're in a series called Come and Stay, and I, I, I reckon that this is the last one of the Come and Stay series. And so that, that card on your seat that's been there every week for this series, there you go. Take that home with you. Take it into the holiday break. As a reminder... We're not here the next two Sundays, but we do have a candlelight gathering at our downtown campus at Marathon Music Works works at 6.30 on Tuesday. So if you want to come and be festive and worshipful and sweet and just family and all the good words of the holidays, be at Marathon on Tuesday. It's very sweet, very fun. Um, Anything else I'm supposed to tell you? We're back here on January 6th. I don't think so. Um, All right. So come and stay couple taglines, because I got to dig in pretty quick here. In a culture of come and go, we're trying to be a church that says yes to Jesus' invitation to come and stay. Uh, In other words, like going, Jesus, we have no agenda but to sit at your feet, and we will not get up until you've told us to. Uh, And if you want us to wait on you and wait on you and wait on you, we know Psalm 25 says... He who waits on the Lord will not be put to shame. And so this series is one of those, hey, fast paced culture, especially in the holidays. Anyone already tired? We're not even, a, we're still a week away, y'all. And it's like, man, Christmas party, Christmas party, way too much gluten and dairy, but I was loving it way too much and love all the festivities, but like, man, our culture's in a hurry. We're event driven. We're at a fast pace. Our minds are going a bunch of different directions. Even right now, as you're anticipating holidays, some of y'all are like, ooh, I can't wait. And some of y'all are like, ooh, I can definitely wait. My family awaits me as trouble and anxiousness and fear, and I don't want them to talk to them, and please don't help them say the thing that gets the whole table up. You know, you just feel all this stuff. So what an appropriate time to go, hey, for today, let's push all that to the side. Let's just, Holy Spirit, we're just gonna be still. That's the heart of coming this day, learning how to just be still in his presence. And we're we've been looking at Galatians 5, every week, looking at a fruit of the spirit, because John 15 says, Abide in me and you'll bear fruit. And Galatians 5 says, the fruit of the spirit is this. And so every week we're looking at a different fruit of the spirit. And instead of coming into it going, How can we do this amazingly? We're actually going, How do we sit at the feet of Jesus and receive his character? So if we're focused on love, we're like receiving the love of God. If we're focused on joy, receiving the joy of God. And today we're in our last one, and it's self-control. Self-control is the last fruit of the Spirit, underrated one, right? Like when you think fruits of the Spirit, I feel like this isn't one that I often think of. Like I I name it, but I don't think about it very often, so I'm pumped to dig in. Good news, the definition for self-control, very simple. I mean, it's basically self-control. It is in the word. It's like self-restraint temperament, you know, I guess like harnessing the emotions and the desires, like being careful with them, I don't know. But a word that comes to my mind also as we think about God is the word mercy. Let me read the definition because there's a part of the sentence that always like puts a pretzel in my mind. Here's mercy. Compassion or forgiveness shown in someone in whom it is within one's power to punish or harm. Like, if I'm thinking about the Lord and his self-control, the word mercy feels really appropriate. It is within his power to do things, and there are some things that even though it is within his power and he has every right to do it, he does not. Thanks be to God. Okay? Um, So we're going to read a story out of John chapter 2. So if you've got a Bible, John chapter 2. We're going to read verses 13 through 22. Just tune into the Holy Spirit. I might make a mess of this, but I do think the Holy Spirit has something here. So just just God, I'm listening. John chapter 2, verse 13. Here I go. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, yeah, Jesus, whip of cords, here we are, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. Please hear this moment, (laughs) like Jesus, whip of cords, rustling of feet, (laughs) and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. I've got a cough. All right, second half. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy the temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remember, oh, sorry, I read that with the wrong tone, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. So when I, when I brought up self-control, this is probably not the story you had in mind, the one time where it seems like Jesus kind of lost it, you know? It's like Jesus with the whip of cords, flipping tables, dumping money. But man, from the very beginning of the series, this was the story, I don't know why I hadn't even dug into it, but I was like, self-control, temple, Jesus, throwing stuff, we're going there. And I didn't know why. I did, And as I've explored it, I'm like, oh, just Lord, help me take what's in here and to the best of my ability, give it here to your glory, because this is so rich and so beautiful. To start digging into this passage, I actually want to take us to a different story. You don't have to turn there, but it's in Exodus. It's a story of the Passover. So, at the very beginning of Jesus cleansing the temple, throwing tables, throwing money, whip cords, it's the week of Passover, and that's, I think that's a pretty beautiful detail. So let me just explain in a very almost insultingly condensed fashion what that is. Um, no judgment for those that know more about this than me, all right? Okay, in Exodus, Israel had been in captivity for 400 years, we're familiar with this story, Prince of Egypt, you know, let my people go. And they've been crying out. God hears them. God chooses a man named Moses to go before Pharaoh and demand, let my people go, okay? Moses ain't got it like that, but God's promise is, I'm going with you. You're just my tool. You're, you're, you're the vessel, but I'm going I'm to handle business, okay? And so Moses shows up, and here's the promise God gives to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, So the story of Passover celebrates that God removed every burden from him and his people. Okay? Now I want to introduce another term that's going to help us appreciate the self-control of John 2, and it's this word, zeal. Important word. Okay? Zeal means great energy or enthusiasm in pursuit of a cause or an objective. If you want a story that very quickly shows you zeal, when Jesus is arrested, Peter takes out a sword, cuts off a scribe's ear. He is zealous. He has great energy and enthusiasm for the objective of protecting his Messiah. He acts out of great zeal, all right? He's a zealous man. You can accuse Peter of a lot, but lacking zeal isn't one of them. Just get to know his story. That's why his foot's in his mouth all the time, because he's zealous, all right? Deuteronomy 4.24 For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. We have to understand that God is full of zeal, this holy, all-consuming fire. He has supernatural energy and enthusiasm toward his purposes and his plans. He is consumed with them. Okay, that's the God that is going to deliver the people of Israel from Egypt. We're going to feel His zeal in this story. We're going to feel His zeal, and then heal, and then. Mm-mm. Um, I'm just making sure you're here. Be here. All right. So God sends Moses to remove Israel from Egypt, and Pharaoh says no, uh, like nine straight times. Uh, he's like, "Hey, or, you know, let my people go." No, and every time Pharaoh says no, God sends a plague to Egypt. Fun little fact, when you dig into this story, every plague is an indictment and a total domination of a false god in Egypt. Every plague is for a different god of Egypt. Just letting them know, the God of Israel is the one true God. But Pharaoh has a hard heart, refuses to listen. So for the 10th plague, God promises something really, really severe. He's gonna kill the firstborn child of every family in Egypt. Unless they kill a lamb, without blemish, cook the lamb and eat it, and take the blood of that lamb and put it on the doorpost of their house. That is the only way to spare your family, is to follow that instruction from God. Exodus twelve thirteen says, this is God, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. There it is. Why is it called Passover? Right there. Passover. I will pass over you and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. This day shall be a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. That's the week of Passover. And God says, never forget this moment. So the week of Passover remembers a God removing every burden in the way of his people in right relationship with him to remove anything and anyone that stood in the way of the people in God, okay? Like I said, we're condensing the mess out of that story. Back to John 2. So Jesus, on the week of Passover, heads to Jerusalem, as many people are doing on this week. Many people are coming, and as they're coming. They're going to purchase sacrifices that they can give to a priest that the priest can offer up to God to cleanse them of their sin. It's a ritual cleaning. Naturally, as people travel, they either can't afford or just don't even have like an ox or sheep or pigeons, like they've traveled. And they either didn't have the animals or maybe the animals didn't survive on the way or whatever reason. So when they get to Jerusalem, they need animals. They need to purchase animals so they can give it to a priest. Okay, What does Jesus find when he walks into the temple? I don't know how involved the priests are in this one. I know they're within the outer court of the temple. At the very least, the priests are aware of the situation, but I don't wanna assume too much. But someone has cornered the market on the people's need to attain sacrificial animals to make their relationship right with God. And they've turned a profit, okay? You have money changers that are exchanging currencies for people from other lands. Hey, we can exchange here for a profit. People selling oxen, sheep, pigeons, turning a profit. Fun fact, the pigeons that are being sold are for those that can't afford like the the real sacrificial animals. The pigeons are for the poor. So they're upcharging the poor so that the poor can get right with God. A place of business. On the week of celebrating, you're going to see me keep looking at my notes because I really don't want to miss what I typed. On the week of celebrating a holy God, full of zeal, removing every burden in the way of the people so they could freely walk with him, people are inserting burdens in other people's ways within the temple of God. Matthew 18.6 says this, Quote Jesus, same Jesus, for God so loved the world, same Jesus, nativity scene manger. He says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. In other words, anyone gets in the way from a little child on their way to God, be better, rock tied to your ankles, tossed in the sea, drowned to death. That sounds pretty Old Testament, don't it? you know what it sounds like? It sounds like the God of Egypt. It is. That's exactly who said it. Jesus is not kidding when he says it. He was there. He was in Egypt. With authority, he promised that 10th plague. He was right there. Fun fact, Leviticus 14.33 tells us that if Someone suspected there was a disease or infection or corruption within their house, their house that they live in. They would call a priest. Well, they would walk and find a priest and talk to them face to face, for they did not have phones, (laughs) as you already knew. The priest would come inspect the house. If a priest found infection or corruption within the house, he would cleanse the house for seven days. No one can be in this house for seven days. You must get out, there's corruption. He would come back again and inspect it. It was the duty of the priest to inspect the house for corruption. What does Jesus say in John 2? Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The high priest Jesus has walked into his father's house, the temple in Jerusalem, and is inspecting it for disease and corruption, and he has found it. So it is his priestly duty to clean it out, get out, get out. You cannot be here. You have to leave right now. God acted in Egypt because the people of God were not free, and so he removed the burden. And now the people that know this story the best, guys, listen, My family has a tradition. We read the story of Jesus's birth every Christmas. And in my teenage years, and even in my 20s, if you're like me, you hear the story of Jesus that you've heard every Christmas and probably a lot of times before Christmas. And there's a part of you that just rolls your eyes. You've heard the story so much that the potency's wearing off. The meaning of it is wearing off. Your own willingness to meditate on the miracle of the story is wearing off. That's the Passover story for these people. Since they were three years old, they've had this just burned into their brain. They know the story. Okay, yeah, Moses, oh, let my people go. Blood of the lamb, angel of death passes over. Glory be to God. Look, can we eat now? They've forgotten the potency of the story so much they have become Egypt. They are placing obstacles in the way of the people in the temple of God. Do not miss the zeal. Just volcanic erupting in the chest of Jesus as he inspects his father's house. Walks into the temple where it should be quiet. You should hear the murmur of desperate prayers. Hear, but you just feel the reverence. And instead what he hears is, two for one. I got two for one over here. Hey, before you buy that, I got it cheaper. And it's a, it's a bigger ox. Come over here. Hey, hey, excuse me, sir, sir. He hears a marketplace there's no worship. There's no reverence. No one's being made right with God. People are having to overcome obstacles. I want you just to go there. This is the whole point of the series. Picture it. I'm not saying this is exactly what happened, but picture it. Picture a mom and dad and their kids realizing they can't afford it. Going, oh, can you, can you, can you bargain with me? No. No, I can't. Okay. Like, I'm overcome with emotion thinking about, like, looking at your wife and, and your kids and being like, okay, okay. Let's go to the pigeons. I bet, I bet we can afford that. And all of a sudden, they're carrying this weird sense of guilt, shame, embarrassment, and all they wanted to do was show up to the temple and get right with God. What do you think Jesus thinks about that? He told you in Matthew 18, cause one of these little ones to stumble. Do not discount some of the feelings in Jesus's chest when he is in his father's house, and it's his father's house. Someone throws a kegger at my parents' house and makes a mess, I'm gonna be raging. You know, I mean, imagine someone just making a mess in your parents' house without asking, no matter what your relationship is with them, there's this territorial something that will be birthed in you, like, "Uh uh-uh, only I can do that. (laughs) Nuh-uh. This is his father's house. That's why, I quote Psalm 66, zeal with your house consumes me. An all-consuming fire made of zeal is consuming That's a fact of scripture. It is consuming him. No one longs for a pure and holy temple like Jesus. And he walks in there and hears sales pitches. He walks in there and watches people exchanging currencies for a profit. I've had dudes ask me about righteous anger, as if they stand a chance. (laughs) I don't know why dudes love the idea of righteous anger. This story in John 2 should have a do not try this at home label. You have no idea. What was in Jesus, and I'm not even saying he's angry in this story. It's very clear he's zealous, and I don't know how to differentiate those two things, so don't don't, don't hear me wrong. But this story is supernatural zeal and supernatural self control on display. The zeal of Jesus could have so effortlessly led him to go, and everyone turned to dust. Just, I don't even have to say it, just breathe, this is done. Turn around, pillar assault. that kind of stuff. Like, no, not here, it's over, everyone's gonna learn. Why is the cross so powerful? Because he could have called down 10,000 angels to kill everyone within his vicinity. He has that in him. That is with effortlessly within his right. The God of justice does not have to apologize if you agree or disagree with his idea of justice. He can do whatever he wants, and he's right. He cannot be wrong. The zeal is in him. When the disciples ask Jesus, hey, should you call down fire on that town and just destroy it? They may be immature. They're not wrong about the power that God possesses. They're 100% right, because he could. He did it. Sodom and Gomorrah, it happened. Do it again. But instead, all Jesus does is flip some tables, dump the money on the ground, just hear the coins hitting the stone floor, looking at the money changers. I don't know about you, but when I get mad, oftentimes my feelings are hurt. There's actually a broken heart underneath the anger. And God, in my maturing, is teaching me not to get angry anymore and instead just to be vulnerable before him and just cry it out. (laughs) But I just see this, like, zealous Jesus dumping the coins, looking at the money changers like, do you understand, without me saying anything, what I am telling you? What have you done? What has happened here? Where are you right now? Why am I dumping out prophet in my father's house? What has happened in this place? Get out right now. And he has a whip of cords and there's no evidence that he touches anyone with it, but the threat is looming. And I'm assuming no one tried him. They just trusted it. Like, you know what? I believe you right now. I believe you. You would. You would. I'm going to get it. The animals, same thing. They're like, "Mm yeah, you know, like we're out. we out. I've seen a mad shepherd before or I've seen a zealous shepherd before. I don't like this. What if I just grab this mic and start doing a stand up bit? Just trying to relieve tension over here. Do you already, are you already starting to just like taste that self-control in Jesus right here? When I remind you of a zealous God and what is the power that he possesses, how harmless does flipping some tables sound? When a God that can turn you to dust just throws some furniture, you're like, that could have been worse. In all seriousness, that could have been worse. I'm reminded of like Paul, Damascus, and the living God looks him in the eye and goes, why are you persecuting me? He later writes, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why do you think he wrote that? Because he, yeah, because he knows. That's what's happening here. And at the end, Jesus says something really interesting. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Actually, the people are perplexed. Hmm, it took 46 years to have no test. So how's that gonna work? It's like Nicodemus in John 3:16. He's like, but how am I supposed to enter my mother's womb and be born again? Jesus is like, goodness gracious. <laughs> <sighs> Nick, 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 Nick. Um, before Jesus goes on the cross, they have the Last Supper. Guess what week that happens on? The week of Passover. yeah. I knew that before I studied all this, but I got so in the weeds of this that I forgot and I relearned it again yesterday and was like, no way, dude, no way. I forgot that this was on the week of Passover. Jesus passes around the bread and says, this is my body. He passes around the cup and says, this is my blood. What he is saying is, I'm the priest that makes the sacrifice and I'm the lamb that is being sacrificed. I will make this offering on your behalf. I will be the offering on your behalf. In that moment, he is relieving every priest of their duty. It's over, no more. No longer do you have to come and purchase a sacrifice. First Corinthians 620, I am buying you with a price. You don't have to spend it, you don't have to pay anything. I'm paying it, it's done. I'm removing that burden, it's gone. Romans three, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he may, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Hebrews 4 it says, we have a high priest that sympathizes. That day in John 2, Do you think they felt that they had priests that sympathized with them? As they had to work out a budget for sacrificial animals? Jesus goes, I'm the great high priest, I sympathize. I've been tempted in every way but remain perfect. And through my death and my resurrection, there is a throne and make no mistake, it's a throne. It is holy, it is perfect, and we do not belong. But because we have a high priest who also became the spotless lamb and shed his blood for us, he sympathizes. And not only are we allowed in the room, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. You do not have to fear Although a little fear might go a little, it might actually help you just a touch. It might help you appreciate who it is that has shown you grace. More on that in January. The wages of sin is death. Fact, it's death. Sin is not in heaven because God cannot, it doesn't happen, that doesn't work. They cannot coexist in the same place. That's the miracle of the God becoming man and absorbing the sin all of his anger toward the harm and the death that sin brings. He did not distribute it to us. He took it on his chest and then out of his mouth, instead of destroy them all, Father, forgive them. They don't know. Please forgive them. That is self-control. Harnessing that zeal. Instead of directing it recklessly, Directing it strategically and out of love and compassion. That is possessing an overwhelming amount of power, but channeling it. That is having the power to punish, but instead showing compassion and forgiveness. That is mercy. No longer do we have to travel to a temple. Scripture says, your body is a temple. And if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord, his presence is in you. You are covered in righteousness. You will not receive punishment from someone that absolutely possesses the power to punish. Instead, you'll receive grace. Instead, you'll receive mercy. Jesus has removed the burden of sin in the same way that he removed the money changers and those selling sacrifices, and in the same way that he removed the burden of Egypt by the mercy of God. You may not be sinful enough to understand how deep that mercy is. He has shown me so much mercy. He has withheld... So much consequence. By his mercy, I'm a son of God. He has just thrown furniture when he could have turned me to dust. I don't know what you're feeling right now, but I hope that when you think about John chapter two in this moment, immediately I hope that it's, it's just hitting a little different. There's a little bit of a different perspective on this. Jesus throwing furniture in the temple. How much self-control is he really displaying in this moment? And so the whole point of this series is to give you a chance to close your eyes, to breathe deeply, and to relive the story that whoever was teaching just taught about. And hopefully with some Holy Spirit perspective, like really understand a a thing about God, whether it's a, a new aspect of God or the same old, same old, but he's just adding some depth to it for the sake of your soul. So I'm gonna give you eight to nine minutes to breathe deeply, to reflect on Jesus in the temple. Try to hear it. Try to see it. Try to feel this story. And then just pay attention. With an open heart, go, God, is there anything you're wanting to teach me about yourself right now? Anything you're needing me to hear as your child? So you got eight or nine minutes. I'll come back up and direct us after. All right. I'm gonna... Segue us to uh, a time of communion. There's communion on the inside rows here underneath the the inner chairs. Um, We're gonna circle up in groups of two or three and simply just share. What'd you see? What'd you think about? If, If you feel like God was speaking to you, you can say that. If you feel like your imagination just took over and you thought about some interesting things, that's fine too. Or you can just say, I don't wanna do this and I'm not circling up and that's fine too. So if you want, circle up. What we believe is if we'll share what we thought about if like the Lord was speaking to us about himself or about us. Even if you think it's not that significant, the one, the person in your circle might have went, I needed to hear that today and vice versa. So I would encourage you to be bold. Like I'd say, go for it. Share with somebody. So make yourself at home, circle up chairs, two or three, share what you were thinking about, what's got up to. And uh, in about seven minutes, I'll come back up and we'll head up, we'll head out to uh, Christmas, I guess.